Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. It's that time of year again, the holidays. It's a very special time that is marked by a series of get-togethers, holiday office parties, gatherings with friends, and let's not forget time with family. As lawyers, we often get asked questions, right? Whether it's how to deal with a speeding ticket or starting a new business or adopting a child, those close to us often turn to us for advice when their lives come into contact with the legal system. We here at the State Bar stand ready to help. In this year in review, we will give you highlights and updates on legal developments across a spectrum of practice areas, cyber law and data security, appellate practice and family law. So sit back, relax, and listen up. The only thing we cannot and will not help you with is selecting the right look for that ugly sweater party. That part is entirely left to your discretion, or indiscretion as the case may be. Now, let's get underway with the State Bar's 2019 Holiday Podcast. Do you remember when getting hacked referred to receiving a terrible haircut? Remember when protecting your data required nothing more than a deadbolt? If the last few years have taught us anything, it's that data privacy and cybersecurity have taken their place at the forefront of business, law, and the business of law. No one knows this better than Sean Tuma. I've actually known Sean for a number of years and recall the days when Sean would try to warn us all about cybersecurity. Most of us looked at him with blank stares as we tried to count the syllables in cybersecurity. By the way, there are six syllables in the word cybersecurity. In a twist of irony, the word polysyllabic has only five syllables. Yeah, try to wrap your head around that one. Well, Sean's been sitting at the vanguard of data privacy and cybersecurity law for over 20 years. He's an attorney at Spencer Fain, where he serves as co-chair of the firm's data privacy and cybersecurity practice group. And he's also active in the State Bar of Texas's computer law section. So, Sean, 20 years. Holy cow, you're an old guy. Man, I am an old guy, Rocky. I've been doing this for a long time. And you know, the interesting thing about this area of law is I still wake up every day scared to death about how much I still do not know about it because it's changing so quickly. Well, then why are we talking to you? Just kidding. <laughs> so Sean, t- tell me, you, you, you've actually been sounding the alarm on cybersecurity for many years now. Are you starting to feel vindicated now? Do you think people are finally catching on to the importance of this topic? Yeah, you know, Rocky, it, that, it's interesting you ask that because I first got into cyber law back in 1998 and 1999 with Y2K. And so Y2K was going to be my rocket ship to stardom. And I started writing and speaking and, and you know, really was looking forward to this great career as the Y2K lawyer of the world. And as we all know, Y2K came and went, and that was about it. There wasn't much to it. And so I adapted and transitioned into other areas of cyber law, and then around the mid-2000s really started seizing upon this this cybersecurity data breach aspect and started warning people about it. And you know what I continued to hear? I heard Sean we've heard this out of you before. We've heard this chicken little, the sky's falling bit when you were talking about Y2K and we're not buying it. And so it really took several years from there uh, before people 
you know, I did. I started to feel vindicated. And really, it wasn't until the target breach at the end of 2013 uh, that the world woke up and started seeing a lot more about this. Well, so let's maybe work backwards a little bit. Let's let's talk about the basics of cybersecurity for those that are kind of unfamiliar. You know, can you talk about some of the legal issues kind of in this field generally? Because, I mean, I can tell you on on for my part, I know it's important and I kind of understand it in the abstract. I don't know that I really understand the legal issues involved in cybersecurity. So can you kind of give us that overview? And then we'll talk a little bit about 2019 and what's been going on more recently. Sure. First and foremost, for an attorney, um, it all starts with our duty of confidentiality to our clients and our duty to protect confidential client information. So it starts with us and our own practices and our own law firms and the need to protect the information that clients entrust over to us. And that's referenced in, you know, the ABA model rules, uh, Texas disciplinary rules. And we also see it with many more sophisticated companies now that are our clients that are inquiring about and mandating that law firms use appropriate cybersecurity to protect the information they entrust to us. So, Uh, From a business standpoint and an ethical standpoint, we lawyers have a duty to protect the information that we've been given. Um, And add to that, Texas uh, recently um, enacted or the the Supreme Court approved the duty of technological competence uh, for Texas lawyers. So part of that duty of technological competence is the duty to understand the tools we're using, the tools we need to use in the practice of law, and how to use those appropriately, which really comes down in a lot of cases to things like e-discovery tools, email, protecting our communications, things like that, using what's appropriate for the situation. So that's the lawyer-specific focused uh, issues that we need to know as practitioners. Now, for everyone there are two major components of cybersecurity and data privacy law. There are the laws that require you you maintain certain security protocols that you have adequate security of your network and of your uh, computer, your data. We have roughly 25 states that have laws that say, you know, you must do X, Y, and Z to protect information on your network. In Texas, it's as simple as saying, you know, you need to use reasonable measures to protect the security of data that you collect and store on your network. Um, some states go much more granular than that. And in fact, we've seen California coming out with a new law uh, called the California Consumer Privacy Act that has even, you know, very granular detail and, and other states are doing that as well. The other aspect of the law, so we have the security laws, they say you must secure the data. The other ones that we hear about the most are what we call the breach notification laws or the data breach laws. Those are privacy-based laws, and all 50 states now have them. They're international ones like the EU's GDPR and things like that, and what those laws are there to do is they're there to protect the privacy of personal information that companies, including lawyers and law firms, gather, process, and and store. And what they say is if you have a breach of the privacy, 
of that data if somehow the confidentiality of that data is compromised, such as through a hacking event, you have to give notice to the individuals whose data was impacted so that they can then take measures to protect themselves. That's why we see all of these breach notifications day after day after day, and uh, it's, it's being in compliance with those privacy laws. So those are the legal frameworks that we have to operate in. Our role as counsel is to help clients um, understand and comply with their legal and regulatory obligations. And if they're in more specific areas like healthcare, HIPAA, if they're in financial services, Gramm-Leach-Bliley, if they're publicly traded, we've got the SEC issues. And so it's to help comply with those. And then whenever you have an incident, to analyze it to see is it a breach that will then require that public notification and other steps to be taken. So you actually have to know the technology as well as kind of the legal framework that surrounds it. You actually have to understand the different the types of servers and the types of technologies that people would use in different industries to do what you do. You need to have a good idea of it, and you need to have a strong support network of other professionals that you can go to when you need that more granular detail. You got to know when to say when. You know, call in the experts. As long as I don't have to do any math, I might be able to do this. So, hey, let's let's talk about 2019 for a second. How's this year been? I mean, I know we've been hearing about cybersecurity issues in the news, but are there any interesting cases or developments that we lawyers should be aware of and kind of read up on? Absolutely. In Texas, we have an amendment on September 1st that becomes effective on January 1st. It's an amendment to our data breach notification law. In Texas, the standard used to be when you had a breach as a business, you had to notify the individuals as quickly as possible. And now that law has been updated to say you must notify within 60 days after determining you've had a breach. So it adds a specific time period on there, but it also brings Mm. in that concept of determining you had a breach, which means you have that time to analyze it, bring in professional forensics examiners, what have you, to help you determine was it really a breach or was it not. So it's brought some more certainty to our Texas law, and it's also added the requirement for notifying the Texas Attorney General, if you have over 250 Texas residents that you have to notify of a breach. Wow. Okay. So it's it's not for necessarily really, really small, maybe cottage businesses. This legislation is covering those that are affecting 250 or more Texans, effectively. No, no. The the It covers everybody. It covers oh, wow. okay. the solo uh, business owner selling some multi-level marketing product off of their laptop computer that collects information. And if if they have even one person impacted, they have to comply with this law. The 250-person trigger only applies to notifying the attorney general. So if you have one person impacted, you have to notify them, usually by mail. If you have over 250 impacted in Texas, you then have to notify the attorney general as well. What do you think 2020 is going to bring in this area of data privacy and cybersecurity? 
You know, um, in 2019, you know, that's what we saw in Texas. We see a lot of states enacting these more comprehensive uh, privacy laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is a watered down in some ways and more stringent in others version of the EU's general data protection regulation. And we're now seeing a lot of copycats in other states. In Texas, in 2019, we had a proposed version of that that was a a much more reasonable version. It did not pass. That will be coming up again in 2021 as far as legislation Mm. goes. For 2020, what I think we're going to continue to see, we're seeing a lot of ransomware attacks on professional service providers like law firms. At the end of 2018, the ABA issued guidance treating that as a breach. Obviously, that's not law, but it is uh, persuasive mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of attention paid to ransomware. Unfortunately, there's not a lot that legislation can do to fix it, but it's giving rise to a strong birth or more interest in cyber insurance. And cyber insurance is is an evolving area. And um, over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of misinformation in the law about the validity of cyber insurance policies and coverage over certain issues. And so I think we're going to continue to see more refinement of that. For example, we see companies trying to make claims under property policies saying they should cover cyber events, and then whenever they're, they're not successful, we hear all this fake news about, oh, cyber insurance doesn't pay claims. Well, that's because it wasn't a cyber insurance policy. It was a property policy, but people get all that confused, and so it's spreading a lot of bad information about that. I think we're going to see more refinement of that issue. We're going to see more states coming up with these patchwork of privacy regulations. It's going to make it very difficult on business, even more difficult, because when you have a data breach, you have to comply with the law of the state where the individual person resides. So if you're in Texas, Mm -hmm. you have data for people in all 50 states. You have to follow the notification requirements for the people in each of those 50 states. Now we're seeing more of the security requirements. And so when they start conflicting, it's going to be really difficult for businesses to comply with that, which is given a push for uh, federal legislation. Unfortunately, they've been trying for federal legislation for many years now, and it doesn't seem to be going very far. So, uh, you know, we'll continue to hear more about that federal legislation as well. I don't think we're going to see it in 2020 or even 2021. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're not only busy now, you're going to get busier as time goes on. So, well, Sean, thank you for this for this update. You know, we're, we'll are we definitely circle back with you at some point and, and see how your predictions pan out for 2020. But thank you for spending this time with us and giving us this overview of of this very fascinating and very fast-evolving area of the law. Thank you again. Well, it's my pleasure, Rocky. It's always a joy to uh, visit with you and have these conversations. All I can say is uh, don't hold me too much to my uh, my magical crystal ball of predictions because my, my record going back to, to uh, Y2K hasn't always been that great. Yeah, you're still you're still kind of sore about that whole year 2000 thing, aren't you? Man, it stings.
It really does. <laughs> well, it looks like 2020 may be the exact opposite of that. It, so, it sounds like sounds like you got your finger on the pulse. So we'll, we'll definitely circle back and talk more about this. And, and hopefully more and more lawyers are going to start studying up on their ethical duties, as well as what they need to do in terms of informing their clients and keeping them on, on top of things. So again, Sean, thank you for this update. And we will definitely circle back with you soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Rocky. I've enjoyed it. One of the best sources for a bird's eye view of the legal profession is your friendly neighborhood appellate lawyer. Appellate lawyers handle issues that can impact the entire legal spectrum from criminal procedure to intellectual property law to trust and probate, you name it. So who better to help us look back at 2019 than Warren Harris, the chair of the appellate practice group at Bracewell LLP. Warren is based in Houston, but his practice takes him everywhere. A past president of the Houston Bar Association and past chair of the state bar's appellate section, Warren is the lawyer to help us reflect on 2019 and look ahead to 2020. Welcome, Warren. Hi, Rocky. How are you? Oh, doing great. Doing great. Thank you for being here. You know, so Warren, I... A little birdie told me that you've co-written an article for the January 2020 edition of the Texas Bar Journal. And I've read the article, and you discuss updates on interlocutory appeals. Why interlocutory appeals? Why was that so important for that article? Every year for this article, we we look at an update on appellate law and usually focus more on procedural aspects uh, of the appellate practice area. Uh, the year in review article covers a lot of other substantive areas, so we try to leave those to the other practitioners that write on those and focus more on appellate procedure. And this year, there were several notable interlocutory appeals cases, so we thought it would be nice to highlight all of those in this year's article. Okay, so why don't you give us a bird's eye view of what's going on in that realm? You know, what's what's important about these cases, and how do they change the nature of inter- interlocutory appeals for for trial and appellate practitioners moving forward? Well, all of these deal with slightly different but very specific areas of the interlocutory appeal practice. The first one is the Scripps uh, Operating versus Carter case, and that deals with whether you can have successive appeals. The Texas Supreme Court had to address the issue of whether once an appeal is taken under 51014, you can take another appeal uh, under that provision. And the Supreme Court said that the appellate court did have jurisdiction to consider successive appeals under that statute because there's no limitation in the statute on the number of appeals. And that's an important case because often you have one issue that you want to take up and later might need to take another issue up. And so the question was, can you do that? Are you limited to one or can you take a second appeal? And the Supreme Court, although it said, yes, you can take successive appeals, noted that each appeal has to challenge a ruling on a new and distinct motion. It can't just be a motion to reconsider, so you can't get two bites at the apple. And in the Scripps case, the first motion dealt with a motion for summary judgment that the plaintiff was a public figure and that there was no malice. And so that was the issue that was going up. Because there was a public figure, it had to be malice and there was no malice. The um, Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's ruling uh, denying summary judgment on that point. And then the defendant in the case filed a second motion for summary judgment, but this motion was a new and distinct motion, and it argued that the published articles at issue were true, and there were some related arguments that went to that, but it was arguing truth as a defense in the case, and therefore that was different and a new and distinct motion from the public figure 
argument that had been made previously, and the Supreme Court held on these facts, the successive appeal was allowed. So I'm assuming then Scripps was some kind of defamation case? Exactly. Dealing with the newspaper media defendant. Okay. All right. So they're saying that it's not two bites at the apple as long as you're you're appealing two separate issues. But now let's let's talk about once you have a final judgment, though, I'm assuming you still only get one appeal at that point once you've got a final judgment. Or can you break that up into two separate appeals? No, no, no. You're exactly correct on the final judgment. There, everything needs to be taken up as part of that. But this is dealing with it with an interlocutory appeal pre-final judgment, where you have uh, an ability by statute to take an appeal. And in this case, it was under 51.014A6 of the Civil Practice and Remedies Code. 51.014 of the Civil Practice and Remedies Code is the statute that allows interlocutory appeals, and A6 is the one that allows uh, basically media defendants is the easy, easy shorthand way to deal with that, but allows them to take up certain issues before there's a final judgment. So that that's why that they were able to take up more than one appeal, because there was no final judgment. And again, here, the first motion that was filed by the media defendant was because you are a public figure plaintiff, you have to show that there was actual malice. And when the court denied that, the defendant then was able to file the second motion for summary judgment saying, well, everything we said was true, therefore that is a defense to your claim. So in scripts, were we dealing with two separate motions for summary judgment, or was it one motion for summary judgment raising two issues, and then the defendant effectively filing two separate interlocutory appeals on the same motion? No, it was two motions for summary judgment. H- had both of these grounds been raised in one motion, then all of that would have need to have been taken up at once. So had it been one motion for summary judgment that argued ground one, public figure, therefore no malice, and ground two, truth, then that would have need- needed to have been taken up in one interlocutory appeal. It couldn't have been broken out. But it was only because that there was a new and distinct motion, as the Supreme Court said, and not a motion to reconsider or everything being brought up as one motion that a successive appeal was allowed. So then, does in your opinion, strategically speaking, does it make sense then if you're if you're a defendant in such a case and you're going to file a motion for summary judgment, is it better to file two separate partial motions for summary judgment so that you get those extra interlocutory appeals or does it still make sense to try to hit everything in one motion? Yeah, it's really going to be a strategy call, depending on the case. I think the normal rule would be to put it all in one motion because it's going to save a lot of time and expense to take it all up at one time. I think the other side to that would be where you have a good rifle shot that you think you've got a real winner and it's a narrow issue that you can take up and do that, you know, quicker and maybe more efficiently than taking up three or four or five different grounds, I could see breaking them out separately and hoping that wins. And now under the Scripps case, if you are not successful in getting the case dismissed or getting summary judgment granted on that first issue, it does allow you to go back and get a second bite at the apple uh, as long as you have grounds to file a new and distinct motion with the trial court, you can then take those other issues up. So, again, it's strategy. I think the default mode would be to take it all up at once. But, I mean, w- where you have one narrow issue that can be your winner, I, I think you can make a good argument that strategically you might want to break it out into multiple motions and, and if necessary, take a successive appeal. Do you think there's any concerns with 
I don't know if this is the right term, but panel shopping. You know, so you say, all right, I'm going to file one motion for summary judgment on one issue. And if I don't get the panel I want, then I know I may lose, but then I can file a subsequent motion for summary judgment, file a successive interlocutory appeal down the road. Is that is that going to be a concern moving forward? Do you think the courts are eventually going to have to kind of deal with that? Or is that just is that just the nature of the beast at this point? I don't think gamesmanship is regarding panel shopping is likely to come into play. Depending on the court of appeals that you're in, you may only have a three-judge court, so there may be no ability to panel shop. Uh, but even on larger courts of appeals where you have multiple panels, I, I think that's really hard to do. Um, I don't see lawyers breaking these cases into multiple motions thinking, yeah, if I don't get a good panel on one, let me let me take a second appeal up and see if I can get a better panel there. I, I think the distinctions between the panels are not enough to, to merit someone trying to engage in some fair, fairly dramatic, I guess, forum shopping, if you will, or panel shopping here. Sure. Uh, I just don't don't see that being worth all the, the time and effort and the expense. I mean, that would be a great expense to start breaking everything down into multiple motions and therefore taking multiple appeals. I, I don't see that happening. You said Scripps was just one of the cases. I think there's there's probably one or two others that you mentioned in that article. What did the other cases do to interlocutory appeals separate and apart from Scripps? Right. The, the next case is the NRAE Geomet recycling case, and that deals with stays of interlocutory appeals. And this is an important case. Again, going back to Section 51.014 of the Civil Practice and Remedies Code, Subpart B deals with stays. And once you take an interlocutory appeal, that provision may either stay first all the trial court proceedings or second only stay the trial or three have no effect. It depends on Mm. which provision you are appealing under. You then have to look under 51.014B to see what sort of stay is is applicable to that type of appeal. And NRA Geomet addressed whether these stays are mandatory. The issue in that case was whether the Court of Appeals can lift a stay that's imposed by 51014 pending appeal, and the Supreme Court said no. The Supreme Court's rationale was that stays under 51.014B are mandatory and cannot be lifted by the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court said that the statute creates a clear and definite rule and contains no exceptions to that rule. So that's an important case, knowing that once you go up and you get a stay under the statute, you don't have the ability to lift that stay. It's a mandatory stay and can't be lifted by the Court of Appeals. Now, if I remember, in Geomet, was there some some talk about the interplay between the statute and the Texas Rules of Appellate Procedure, or was I was I mistaken on that? On that distinction, there was that. That was one of the alternative arguments uh, that was made was that the state could be lifted uh, under the rules, or other provisions might allow it to be lifted. And the Supreme Court rejected all of those and said, "No, the, the rules of appellate procedure don't allow it either. There's no exception. It's a mandatory stay under 51.014, and it cannot be lifted by the Court of Appeals." Th- those were alternative grounds that were argued in the case, and the Supreme Court also rejected those. Got it. Okay. Now, there's, there's a third case, too. You want to tell us about that one? Right. And the third case is the Saber Travel case. Uh, this deals with permissive appeals. Uh, and a permissive appeal is a, an appeal where you get the trial court's permission to appeal, and then the court of appeals accepts that appeal. 
the question presented in the Sabre Travel case is when the trial court grants permission to appeal, but the Court of Appeals doesn't accept it, can the Texas Supreme Court nevertheless review the merits of the underlying interlocutory order? So you've got approval by the trial court, but the Court of Appeals says, nope, we don't want to accept it. Can the Supreme Court take it? And the Supreme Court said yes. Um, the court said that it may review the merits of the interlocutory appeal, even where the Court of Appeals refused to accept it. And the court there said that the reason is, is that 51.014D, which is the provision that allows these permissive appeals, only requires the trial court's permission to appeal. There's nothing that states that the Supreme Court lacks jurisdiction just because the Court of Appeals didn't accept the appeal. And that's the first time that issue has been presented to the Supreme Court. So that was an, an issue of first impression. We don't see as many permissive appeals in state practice as you do in federal practice. But that is an important note that once you get the trial court to grant permission to appeal, even if the Court of Appeals doesn't think it's important and ought to take it, you still have the ability to file a petition for review and possibly get review in the Texas Supreme Court. So effectively, the Supreme Court can hear almost anything it wants to hear. Seems to be the lesson of that Sabre case. Well, um, you know, the Supreme Court obviously has jurisdiction limitations as well, and that was the issue here is whenever the Court of Appeals doesn't take it, does that limit the Supreme Court's jurisdiction? And the court had to look at the Civil Practice and Remedies Code and see whether its jurisdiction was limited, and the court ultimately determined that it wasn't, that the trigger is to have the trial court give permission to appeal, and once that happens, whether the Court of Appeals does or does not accept the appeal doesn't have any jurisdictional ramifications for the Supreme Court. It can go on and hear the oh. case regardless of whether the Court of Appeals did. So it's dependent on the trial court, not on the intermediate appellate court. It's kind of in, that, That's an interesting twist. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. But, but that, that's the, the first starting point of uh, a permissive appeal is you have to get uh, permission from the trial court. If you don't get that permission, then nothing goes anywhere. And that's really that's what the Supreme Court focused on for the jurisdiction is. Once you get that, that's all you need. Whether the Court of Appeals accepts it depends on whether it's heard by that court, but that doesn't affect the Supreme Court's jurisdiction to go on and hear the case. Wow. Who knew interlocutory appeals could be this fascinating? But that that's... <laughs> now, I, I'm, I'm telling you, this is this is interesting stuff. Now, Besides interlocutory appeals, though, were there any other notable Texas or federal cases that you think kind of helped punctuate 2019 in some way? Yeah, many of these cases are important to practitioners and their relevant substantive practice area, but there are a lot of big cases out there for the year. Um, I recently did an interview with Law 360 that will be coming out right after the first year talking about some of these. Some are a little more uh, universal and have some procedural aspects, and some are a little more substantive. But some of these cases are uh, the Rormoose Venture case out of the Texas Supreme Court. This is a big attorney's fees case and really is a must-read case. Um, I don't know that it really plowed much new ground in the Texas Supreme Court on Texas attorney's fees law, but it is a great overview of the area. And I think it's something that everybody needs to read if they're either moving to get attorney's fees or trying to defend against attorney's fees claim. It's something that really is the seminal case in the area that everyone needs to be aware of. Another important case, and this is in the oil and gas area, and it's probably more uh, of interest to practitioners in that area, is the Texas Outfitters case, uh, again, from the Texas Supreme Court. 
and that deals with the executive rights to mineral interest and whether uh, the interest holder is engaged in self-dealing. A very important oil and gas case, but probably more of interest to practitioners in that area. And there was a big Fifth Circuit case that really was uh, decided an area that had been closely watched, and that is whether the anti-slap statute can apply in federal court. That had been a big question sure. uh, as to whether that applied in state court or federal court as well. And the Fifth Circuit uh, in the Clock versus Watson case decided that it did not apply in federal court and only applies in state court. Oh, wow. Now, so th- that was 2019. What do you predict is going to be important in 2020? Well, there are a lot of big cases in the system. Um, a couple to note, in the Texas Supreme Court, the Energy Transfer Partners versus Enterprise Products case is a uh, very watched case. I think it's probably the most watched case in Texas right now, certainly for those that do commercial work. It really deals with some fundamental issues uh, on doing business and affects what is required if you want to form or maybe more importantly, don't want to form a partnership uh, whenever you're looking at a business venture. A lot Mm -hmm. of very basic uh, contract issues at play there, and that's going to be a case that a lot of people are watching and really is a very important case to keep your eye on that will Will be, it was argued uh, recently in the Texas Supreme Court, and we'll be, uh, be waiting to see what the court does with that. Wow. Well, big stuff. This is why I like talking to appellate practitioners. You guys see everything from everywhere. So, Warren, thank you for that, for that look back and that look ahead. Maybe we'll talk to you at some point next year and see how your predictions start panning out. So maybe I'm going to put some money on this. <laughs> Thanks, Rocky. It was a real pleasure. Enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you again, Warren. Family law is a fascinating area for anyone fortunate enough to have ever studied it. Not only do family lawyers need to know family law, they must also have a working knowledge of business law, finance, psychology and counseling, and unfortunately, even criminal law in some cases. Beth Johnson is a quintessential family law pro. She's an associate at Calabrese Budner in Dallas and has built a career as a family law appellate practitioner. And she's been generous with her knowledge, having written extensively in numerous publications, including the Dallas Bar Headnotes and the State Bar of Texas Family Law Section's Quarterly Section Report. She has her ear to the ground, so let's hear what she hears. Beth, welcome. So 2019, it's already the end of the year. So has it, what do you think? Has it been a pretty quiet year for family lawyers? Well, I mean, there hasn't been anything super ground shattering. So it's it's been somewhat stable, but there have been a couple of interesting cases that have come out. Okay. Tell us about them. Um, well, one of the ones that caught a lot of people's eye is the N. Ray marriage of Pisk and Lang. And it was Pisk a case involving okay. an arbitrator and an attorney who were actually friends. And it's like the arbitrators are friends with all the attorneys in town because there's not that many family law arbitrators. But they did not disclose in the arbitration agreement that the arbitrator and the attorney has gone to dinners at the arbitrator's house and situations like that. And so the entire property division got set aside and had to go back to a retrial because of that non-disclosure. So a lot of arbitrators are nervous now because they're trying to decide 
what they actually need to be disclosing before they go into arbitration. And so I think the consensus has become just disclose everything you can possibly think of. And then that way you've covered all the bases. And then the client can say, okay, I acknowledge that everybody's friends and we can move forward and get the case done. Now, is this a an appellate court case or is this a Texas Supreme Court opinion? This was in the Court of Appeals. Um, it was in Houston, 14th District. Interesting. So now, is there how much precedential effect do you think this is going to have amongst the other appellate districts? Do you think they're going to follow suit or do you think we could end up with a circuit split, so to speak? That I'm not really sure about. Um, the 14th court tends to put out a lot of opinions. And from my experience, Houston 14th is usually cited quite a bit. And so the the other courts, unless it's something that they feel very strongly about, they tend to follow. I, I put out a lot of opinions in my house, but I get overturned all <laughs> the time. So it, it it does happen. Okay. So in the case of, let's say your your particular docket, has there been an interesting issue you've worked on? Maybe it's Maybe it's something that family lawyers already are aware of, but is there something you've worked on this year that has kind of made kind of made 2019 more memorable for you? Well, we seem to have been seeing a lot of suits with grandparents coming in and trying to take possession of kids, usually after one of the parents dies. And so you'll have like the um, mother pass away and so the maternal grandparents will come in and, and try to get custody of the children. And then there's a dispute between whether the grandparents even have standing to be in that sort of situation. Typically, the grandparents have to prove that there is some sort of significant impairment to the child's physical health or emotional development. But there does appear to be something of a split on that issue. There was one case that came down that said that the fiancé of the mother who passed away, um, he had standing to seek custody. But in another case, the stepmother of a father who passed away um, did not have standing. And so it'll be interesting to see how that turns out because the one involving the... Oh, this is so hard to keep straight. Um, the one out of four. Family law is not easy. <laughs> no, no, and it's hard, and it's hard to remember the genders and everything else that's going on. But um, the one out of Fort Worth is um, up on a on a petition for review in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court asked for further briefing on that. So that might still be a few more months before we find out what the resolution on that is. At first glance, I did notice that in the case where the outside person was granted standing. The person who passed away had custody most of the time. And in the other case, the person who passed away had a standard possession order. So that might be something that is taken into consideration. I don't know personally whether or not that should be, but we'll find out what the Texas Supreme Court says. And I'll tell you one one question I've been asked before it comes down, and this is just this is just my own personal kind of observation. It comes down to the issue of father's rights. And that's that's come mm-hmm. up a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, in particular, what happens, and I, I remember when I was studying for the bar exam, you know, back during the Andrew Jackson presidency, but it was a long time ago. But yeah, you know, when, when I was studying for the bar exam, the rule was that 
whoever was listed on the birth certificate as the father was presumed to be the father. But then there have been some cases lately where it turns out that the person listed on the birth certificate found out later that he was not the father of the child, but was still paying child support. Is it still the rule that once you're on the birth certificate, you're the father, or has that changed over time? Well, there is a statute of limitations um, so that if you don't challenge paternity within four years, you're stuck. Um, Mm. But some time ago, it wasn't a great long time ago, and I unfortunately don't know the date off the top of my head, but they did amend the statute to say that if there was some sort of intentional misrepresentation and then for some reason you didn't even question the paternity until the child was a little bit older, that statute of limitations actually tolls until such time as you would be as such a reasonable person would be expected to start to question the paternity. So I guess there's a discovery rule in place now for situations like that. Basically. Um, and there was a case this year where there was a presumed father and everybody questioned it. And then the trial court ordered a paternity test and the court of appeals reversed that because they said that the trial court didn't even have authority to order a paternity test because there was a presumed father and no one was allowed to challenge that presumption. So that means in that case, only the presumed father could, I guess, move to compel a, a paternity test? Or how, does, how do you get a paternity test in that kind of a situation? I think that the only option would have been for the actual father to voluntarily relinquish his parental rights in favor of the biological father. But since the presumed father actually wanted to remain the father, nobody could come in and take that away from him. Is an interesting situation. Oh, that is interesting. Okay. Yeah. So presumed father wants to remain on the books as the father, even though he knows he's not the biological father. Right, right. Because he'd raised that child and he knew that child as his own. Okay. Okay. So there's there's interesting stuff. Now, now Beth, let me ask you this this final question in closing. Since you're you're a family law attorney, we've you know, we've got a whole bunch of newly minted lawyers who just not only just passed the bar exam, but they've just taken their their ceremonies you know, in, in November. Now, if they want to go into family law, what do you think are some of the things they should know about being a family law practitioner? Are there certain aspects of law they should study? Should they be ready for certain things that maybe they never learned about during the bar exam and in law school? <laughs> Give us your perspective. Well, I think one of the best things they can do is get access to the Texas Family Law Practice Manual because it's kind of a massive collection of forms and practice notes, and it will tell you pretty much everything you need to know to practice family law. I know in the Dallas area, you can take cases through the DVAP, the Dallas Volunteer Attorney Program, and they have mentors on staff that will help you through. And so it's most helpful to have somebody to just walk you through it. But yeah, the practice law manual is the best way to go because you can find any answer you need to know pretty much. And then a good mentor is good to find. And where do you get where do you get your hands on this practice law manual? I believe it's through Texas Bar CLE. I get mine online because I am not a fan of paper, so I like everything to be electronic. Sure. Okay, so time to Google that and figure out how to get it. So, okay, well, Beth, thank you for not only giving us a a glimpse into 2019 so we can all look back. But for those of us that are not family law lawyers, it's always nice to know the interesting cases that come from 
from your neck of the woods. And for those of you out there that are looking to maybe get into family law, you've got some great starting points. Beth, thank you so much for being a part of this. Oh, thank you for calling me. Well, folks, that's just part of 2019 in a nutshell. What a year it's been. I want to thank all of our special guests for their insight. As we look forward to 2020, we at the State Bar of Texas and the Legal Talk Network wish you and your loved ones a safe and happy holiday season. Join us next month as we kick off another year of great content. If you like what you heard today, please rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. Until next year, literally. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.